Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Among the more arcane rules of federal contract protests is a company can't make a money appeal on a protest decision unless that appeal contains a specific dollar amount. It's called the Some Certain Rule. But is it really a hard and fast rule? And if not, what does that mean for the government and for contractors? We get the latest update from Haynes Boone procurement attorney Dan Ramish. And Dan, it sounds like a recent case overturned this idea of the Some Certain Rule. Tell us what happened. Sure, Tom. So the FAR definition of a claim requires that any claim for money against the government or by the government against a contractor has to demand payment in a some certain, which just means that it has to specify a specific amount that is claimed. And for many years, the some certain requirement was treated as a jurisdictional rule. More specifically, it goes to the subject matter jurisdiction of a government contract court or board, meaning that a court or board couldn't even hear a contract claim case unless the claim stated a some certain a specific amount. Where could you take a case if it didn't have a certain sum? So if the claim submitted to the contracting officer didn't state a some certain, it would get kicked back, dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, and the contractor would have to start over if they could. But this was a very harsh rule because a jurisdictional rule can be raised at any time during the litigation. The government, if it's a contractor claim, could lose the case and then raise the lack of jurisdiction over a some certain, and the contractor would have to go back and submit a new claim to the contracting officer, even if they've been litigating for years. And if it had been more than six years, the statute of limitations under the Contract Disputes Act, the contractor would be out of luck. And actually, it's sort of extreme circumstances like that that came up over the summer and caused the Federal Circuit to change its view of this rule. The case was ECC International Constructors, the Secretary of the Army. And the Federal Circuit looked at a line of Supreme Court cases, which the Supreme Court has taken a stronger stance on what rules are considered jurisdictional because there are these harsh results. The rules can't be waived or forfeited. The court actually has to raise them if the parties don't do it. Requirement for the court raising the issue sua sponte. And it can be raised even after years of litigation and a hearing and sometimes have very severe results. So in other so in words, case, the government could lose the case on the merits of whether the protest was valid, but the contractor is still out of luck because the claim didn't have a specific dollar attached to it. Exactly. And so the Federal Circuit looked at these circumstances. ECC had been negotiating for years with the government and then went through years of litigation and the government didn't raise the issue of the some certain rule until three months after the hearing. And this seemed like an extreme circumstance. The Federal Circuit actually raised the issue on its own accord, whether this was actually a, a jurisdictional rule. And because this is such an extreme circumstance and s such special rules, the Supreme Court says Congress has to clearly state in the statute itself that this rule is jurisdictional. And in this case, this was open and shut. The FAR mentions the some certain requirement that claims have to state a some certain, but there's nothing in the Contract Disputes Act which governs contract claims uh, against the government or by the government against the contractor. Right. So, so the Federal Acquisition Regulation then took what was in the law enabling it a step beyond what the law actually stated explicitly. That's right. And the Federal Circuit said, listen, in most cases, this isn't going to matter because it's still a mandatory rule for submitting a claim. It's just not jurisdictional. It doesn't have this special status. So 
as a result, it can be forfeited. And here we're dealing with a circumstance where the government waited so long. The board below should look at this again and consider whether the government forfeited its right, waited too long to challenge the sum certain. Got it. We're speaking with Dan Ramish. He's a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Just give us the details of what they were protesting. They did not get a contract, ECC, and said that they should have. So, Tom, this is a contract claim. The ECC decision was on a series of construction claims on a construction contract with the government. In the case of ECC, it was a design-build job for a military compound in Afghanistan. So there were a number of questions. I mentioned that because this was a non-jurisdictional rule, it could be forfeited, but this federal circuit didn't say how long you had to bring a challenge of the some certain. And so now we have a few decisions interpreting the federal circuit's decision and giving us some sense. So one of those cases was actually the remand decision in the ECC case. After the federal circuit said, well, this rule can be forfeited, they sent it back to the board to decide whether it actually was. And it was a pretty straightforward decision because, again, the government had waited until three months after the hearing. And the Federal Circuit, you know, in its decision, highlighted some of the other details. It was six years after the claim had been submitted, after settlement discussions, discovery, alternative dispute resolution with a board judge, summary judgment briefing, and an appeal uh, on a specific issue. So the Federal Circuit pointed out and the board noted, hey, the government had many, many opportunities to challenge the sum certain, and they didn't do it until three months after the hearing. Well, let me ask you this. In making the claim, why didn't ECC put down an amount they were claiming in the first place? So this is one of the kind of wrinkles in the sum certain rule, Tom. In this case, and actually the two other recent decisions, it wasn't a straightforward case of not stating a specific amount. The overall construction claim submission that ECC submitted to the government had an amount, but the government in its challenge said, well, actually, you're calling this one claim, but this is really multiple unrelated claims, that there was a claim for delays associated with the government's review of design submittals, 95 and 100% design submittals, and then there were a whole bunch of other government-directed additional work and contract changes. And the government said, those are different claims. They're qualitatively different. They involve different operative facts. And so that's why ECC submitted one claim. And this is this comes up a lot in construction contracts where there may be many different claim elements. The government said, hey, those are each claims under the FAR. They each require a some certain as a mandatory requirement for the claim. And the board originally said, hey, I, this is correct. These are qualitatively different claims. They needed to some certain it's dismissed. Federal Circuit said this isn't a jurisdictional rule. So it got kicked back to the board and the board applying the new test from the Federal Circuit above found straightforwardly that the government had forfeited the right to challenge the some certain by the time it raised it. So does this mean that the FAR Council has to get together and change the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR, to reflect these new court rulings that some certain is not quite so certain? So it doesn't require a regulatory change, but the courts and boards are going to have to determine what the forfeiture rule is and whether contractors can correct the issue during litigation or have to refile the claim with the contracting officer and then appeal it again. But the main beneficiary here is contractors, it seems like. It makes it a smoother pathway to sustaining a protest. 
Well, I, I can tell you, Tom, there are certainly instances where the government also brings large claims that are not broken out into subtotals that are distinct. DCAA will have an audit report that has a total amount, but it's unclear how much is associated with the different parts of the claim. You can understand the reason the the contracting officer needs or the or the contractor in the case of a government claim needs to know how much the individual parts are in order to be able to settle them. And the government argues reasonably that contractors sometimes kind of fudge the numbers a little bit and they settle one part and then they say, oh, actually more was associated with this other part of the claim. So that can be an issue, but there's a real question as to whether after the contracting officer issues a final decision, is there any value in allowing the some certain challenge later in the litigation? Because once you're in at the Board of Contract Appeals, you can actually change the amount of the claim as long as you're not changing the underlying basis for the claim. You can prove that you actually sustained more damages from the claim than what you put in your claim submitted to the contracting officer. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to then say that the underlying claim had a problem and therefore you should go back and get a new final decision. So some practitioners are saying, hey, there should be a mechanism for correcting this. Maybe the contractor or the government can alter its initial pleading. The contractor can amend the complaint. If the government says, hey, you didn't give me a subtotal for this uh, particular component, the contractor, you know, under board rules may be able to amend the complaint with the board's permission. And maybe that's a fix. Then everybody knows what the amount is. The claimant gives the other party the information they want, and everybody can move forward without having to go back to the drawing board with a new claim and final decision. But it's a good idea to track how much cost or loss is associated with each claim and keep that running tally to speed things up. Absolutely, Tom. I mean, there is no question from the Federal Circuit's decision that the some certain rule remains a mandatory rule and that contractors in submitting a contractor claim and the government in submitting a final decision that's a claim against a contractor need to state a some certain. And if there are separate elements that are qualitatively separate, they need subtotals for those amounts. So you need to provide a lot of information. But there may be greater leeway down the line if the other party raises an argument as kind of a gotcha. Certainly, if they wait until after the hearing, there's a better chance of getting that argument kicked because they forfeited it. And now we have a, a couple decisions that have actually done that uh, and said the party waited too long and, and couldn't bring a some certain challenge. Dan Ramish is a procurement attorney with Haynes Boone. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive without protest. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.